Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. Watch our videos on YouTube and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project, a member of the club's board of governors, and your moderator for tonight's program. Experts tell us that artificial intelligence, or AI, represents a fourth industrial revolution and one that will change everything. One particularly exciting opportunity is for the potential of AI to transform healthcare by things like finding new cures, personalizing treatment, and making doctors more effective. However, though we have seen some dramatic successes, a great deal of the initial hype about AI in medicine has been a bust. So what's the real state of AI in healthcare today? What can we realistically expect in the future? And finally, in an era where doctors don't seem to be spending enough time with patients, do we really need more technology in medicine? I can think of no one better to answer those questions than our guest. Eric Topol is a cardiologist, geneticist, researcher, and digital medicine expert. He is executive vice president and professor of molecular medicine and Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. And he's also there, the director and founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Before moving to Scripps in 2006, Dr. Topol served as chairman of cardiovascular medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, where he also founded the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. He also is the editor-in-chief at Medscape and theheart.org. And more generally, uh, I think of him as the kind of nation's leading guru on the future of medical technology, particularly in the digital sense. His list of accomplishments are so numerous that I not only don't have time to talk about them tonight or to list them all, but I worry that doing so would just really make the rest of us feel inadequate. So what I'm going to do is give you a few of my favorites because there's some pretty cool ones. Uh, in 2006, Dr. Dr. Topol was named Doctor of the Decade by the Institute for Scientific Information, and that was for being one of the top 10 most cited medical researchers over the prior decade. In 2009, Dr. Topol was selected as one of the 12 rock stars of science by GQ and the Jeffrey Bean Foundation. <laughs> he was voted the most influential physician executive in the United States in modern healthcare's 2012 poll. And here's my very favorite. In 2013, after publishing his book on di the digital revolution in healthcare, he appeared on The Colbert Report, where he examined the host, Stephen Colbert, using several of the devices featured in that book. So uh, for a f an hour or so, you're Stephen Colbert's personal physician. That's quite, quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Dr. Topol's latest book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again, was released earlier this month. It describes AI's current state as well as its likely future impact on healthcare and predicts that this technology, if done right, will create more space for doctors to listen to patients and thus restore humanity to medical care. It's a very optimistic picture that we'll discuss tonight. But first, please help me welcome back to the Commonwealth Club, Dr. Eric Topol. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So let's start with the basics, just to make sure. I, I'm, I assume we've got some people who know a lot about AI in this room and who know very little, perhaps. Uh, maybe we can start with you defining what is artificial intelligence and what are the key components of deep medicine, as you'd think about it. Right. Well, as you alluded to, Mark, uh, artificial intelligence has been around for many decades. But the real exciting story here is this new subtype called deep learning. And just yesterday, the Turing Award was awarded to Jeffrey Hinton and Jan LeCun and uh, Yashua Bergio because they were the real pioneers of deep learning. And basically what that is, is taking data inputs, rich data inputs, insatiable appetite of, hung, of data, and putting it through artificial neuron layers. Those layers are not human decided, they're decided by the data itself. They distinguish all the features, and then you get an output. So if it's an image, if it's uh, speech, and the accuracy of these, or text, is now at a, a parity of humans, if not superhuman. And it just keeps getting better. And so this deep learning is the way that we can take 
the deep phenotyping, understanding each human being at every level. So we're not just talking about the, the person's uh, environment or their medical record or their genome or their microbiome or their sensors or their anatomy, all these layers, their immunome, that is their immune system. That's deep phenotyping. How do you take that to then uh, understand a person so that you can provide far better care than we can provide now, which is, as we talk about, shallow medicine. Mm -hmm. And that is what gets us to this state, potentially, and that's a big if, of deep empathy, restoring the human aspect of medicine, the center aspect. And that's really um, the deep um, uh, human bond that has been lost largely over the decades. We've got to get it back. We've lost the care in healthcare. Yeah, right. And I'm sure that most people in this audience at some point have been a patient and may have experienced some of that loss of the, the care in healthcare. Yeah, how many of you have been roughed up by an interaction with a doctor yeah. here? <laughs> uh, yeah. I opened the book with the one that I had mm -hmm. uh, almost three years ago with a knee replacement. Why don't you tell that story? Well, I mean, I think it's a horror show, but it certainly uh, reinforced the care in the U.S. because I went to an orthopedist who I referred all my patients for a joint replacement. And uh, it didn't go well. The, the surgery itself, that was fine. But the post-op, uh, I was in really bad shape. And uh, I had this profound inflammation reaction to the artificial joint. And so when I went back at a month, uh, when my knee was purple and so swollen and I hadn't slept for that month, hardly, you know, uh, and I had had all, you know, depressed and crying spells and whatnot. And I told him my wife was with me at the appointment and I, my knee wasn't even examined. And the orthopedist told me that I need to see my internist to get antidepressant medication, <laughs> which is kind of robotic, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of where things are at because it takes time to see patients and to understand their story. And we don't have time. The average person sees a doctor in the, in the U.S., seven minutes. And out of those seven minutes, they're not even looking at you. Like, we're looking at each mm -hmm. other. They're like this. And it's just degraded so much. We have to get that back or else we're just continue to go down this spiral, uh, which is just unacceptable. And we'll talk about some of the ways that that may happen. Uh, you know, one of my takeaways from the book was uh, two kind of conflicting notions, but they're, I think they're both true, and that is that AI has tremendous promise and it's been tremendously overhyped at the same time. Uh, well, possible? you know, I don't think it's been overhyped uh, so much in healthcare as to you, your, I think, your field in general has had tremendous amount of hype. Like there was going to be all these self-driving cars everywhere and, right. you know, all this stuff that isn't going to happen uh, in, in many respects. So, there are elements of it that are remarkably um, deeply um, transformed formational. Yeah, yeah. So there's a hype part that is based on r the real promise, mm -hmm. but that's the problem I think you're getting at. It's long on promise and short on proof. Yeah. And so I guess if you want to call that, but in the healthcare space, there's probably more promise there because we're so desperate in so many ways. Right. Then, and, and some of it actually has been fulfilled as we'll talk about. Yeah, I was looking at it early on the book. You, you talk about wh where AI has demonstrated some remarkable abilities. So let me, let me just list a couple of bullet points. It has shown the ability to diagnose some skin cancers as well as or even better than some board-certified dermatologists, to identify specific heart rhythm abnormalities as well as cardiologists, to interpret medical scans and pathology slides as well as senior radiologists and pathologists, to diagnose some eye diseases as well as ophthalmologists, and to predict suicide better than mental health professionals. Now, interestingly, you point out that all of those successes are pattern-based. Why is that significant? Uh, well, the, it goes back to where deep learning works, which is uh, on images, on, on speech, and, and text. So these are examples of supervised learning. It isn't like you can just throw in data that isn't uh, annotated, that isn't labeled, so-called ground truths, where you really know what it is, that, that it is um, nailed down. So we're at that state where the pattern, there's a chapter in the book called, you know, Doctors with Patterns, and that's the group that you're re re uh, referring to, radiologists, pathologists, mm -hmm. 
um, dermatologists, and, and dermatologists and ophthalmologists are kind of leading the charge mm-hmm. because they have a lot of patterns. But it's just it's going to affect every type of medical, you know, primary care, pharmacist, uh, you name it. They're paramedics even now. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a, a, a walk of life within medicine that won't get uh, affected by this. But you say that, that, that AI is very good at recognizing patterns, and since we are also pretty good now at, at reading scans and so forth, that that's a place that some of these patterns, uh, the well, AI can you, make a difference, right? I mean, it's really important uh, you bring that up because I don't know if people are aware. I wasn't aware until I was researching for the book, but... Uh, for radiologists, um, there's a 32% false negative rate missing things mm-hmm. on a scan. Yeah, That's not going to happen in the future as algorithms are trained. And several, many of them are already FDA approved. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get rid of largely the false negatives. And that's going to make radiologists' lives a lot better. Mm. So I want to talk about that because you, 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 one of the main interesting pieces of, of AI, even beyond healthcare, is... How much will they replace people? And I know that you cite this great study from 2017 where the AI researchers at Yale and Oxford, you know, made predictions about how soon AI would match you in performance. I thought it was amusing because they said, for instance, it would take 10 years to replace truck drivers, right? It would take 30 years to replace surgeons. And these same AI researchers said it would take as long as 85 years for AI to replace AI researchers. <laughs> so uh, they were pretty conservative there. But, you know, so replacing doctors, they, they said 30 years for surgeons. I know that in 2016, Zeke Emanuel, who we've had at the Commonwealth Club several times, wrote a paper saying that, uh, that radiology may disappear as a thriving specialty in five to 10 years. Yeah. But what's interesting is the way you wrote about it in your book. You did say some of these predictions are overblown. You conceded that uh, we will have machines reading most scans at some point in the future, or all scans, but you made a great statement, which I want you to explain to people, and I want to read it exactly. The statement was, to avoid being displaced by computers, radiologists must allow themselves to be displaced by computers. You have to explain that to us. Right. So um, I vehemently disagree with Zeke Emanuel and others, and I wrote in the book, who say that you know, radiologists aren't going to be necessary. That is completely preposterous. Mm-hmm. The reason being is that we, our health, uh, and especially you know when we're sick, we rely on um, human oversight. So even though the scan will see things and will uh, provide some uh, preliminary interpretations, mm-hmm. uh, when your life is on the line, when it's a diagnosis of cancer, something serious, you want to know that it really is that. Mm-hmm before you go on to an operation or whatever major treatment. So the radiologists who accept this, that is this new screening uh, capability to avoid missing things largely, they're the ones that are going to lead the charge because then they're going to get much more patient connected. Mm -hmm. So I wrote in the book in my experience about, you know, when I had a kidney stone, I actually asked to speak to the radiologist, which I encourage everybody to do, by the way, because they want to talk to you. They've just been locked up in the basement in the dark. Thank you. But they're going to be actually able to come out and talk to you because they're the honest brokers. Mm -hmm. They don't have a hammer for nails. They don't want to, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. They just want to tell you what they found, and they have a lot of wisdom and experience. And so they're going to get more Mm patient-connected. Pathologists, who only the ones who look at slides, they want to talk to you about what they found. But they have a terrible rate of lack of agreement of interpreting their slide. That's going to be improved Mm -hmm. by AI-trained algorithms. And they're going to want to talk to you about what they saw on these slides and show them to you. Mm-hmm. So that's going to increase the connectivity. And that's the humanity. That, you know, these doctors that have lost their touch, human touch, they want to get it back, and this is a chance for them. Yeah, and that's a great example of that along the way. Uh, I thought it was interesting. You have a chapter on mental health, too, and how AI would affect that. And, you know, it kind of it's generally assumed that diagnosis of most mental health conditions requires talking to patients and that treating a lot of them requires talking to patients. But... Are, you know, will patients really want to discuss mental health issues, their mental health problems with a machine? And do you think that AI can accurately detect problems or provide therapy? Yeah, so this is one of the most interesting areas uh, of where AI is going to go. It's already started. There's two big fronts of uh, change. The first one, which I don't think any of us might have predicted, is that people would rather tell an avatar their most innermost secrets than a human being. 
It's actually remarkable. They feel much more comfortable talking to an avatar. Yeah. So that's very convenient because it's very easy to make avatars. Um, and they're very inexpensive. Uh, they have very low labor costs. And they don't take vacations. They don't get sick. They don't have bad days, you know. No okay. or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. So they don't get distracted. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's one thing. On the other front, at the same time, is the fact that we can quantify state of mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, through sensors. Mm-hmm. So how you type on your phone, mm-hmm. uh, your voice is rich. In fact, just from voice, you can get so much about your state of mind. Mm-hmm. Different than you may say, I feel really happy, but I could tell through your voice, mm-hmm. through an algorithm, mm-hmm. that no, you're not happy at all. You're, under, you're having a lot of tension. Of course, not you, Mark. Yeah, I feel great right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, but also uh, things like your vital signs, your, your breathing. You, if you sigh a lot, you're really having trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a, so there's so many things that we can get passively mm-hmm. to tell a mental condition. So when you add these two together, we're objectively defining a, a mood and state of mind for the first time, and we're being able to outsource some of the support for people to avatars. Mm-hmm. So that's happening right now, and it's really important because, as you know, and everyone here knows, <laughs> depression is the number one cause of disability. Mm-hmm. It's it's rampant. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough professionals, um, mental health professionals, to support people. Mm-hmm. And so this is a real hope, and we are seeing some initial randomized studies that look really promising. Yeah, yeah, and certainly one could hypothesize that uh, many people, some people who are reluctant to seek out mental health treatment with a real person might sneak onto the web and do it with an avatar. Well, and interestingly, young people... Um, like your son here, they don't even like to talk to people. They like to just rather, I know not you, they, they like to, you know, just do uh, text. Yeah, yeah. Why would you want to talk to another person? So this is really convenient for them. And there are a lot of college students that are depressed. I think you know that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in 2011, IBM's Watson famously beat the World Jeopardy champions, right? And that was a big deal. Uh, and basically, you, you say it was because they, you know, it, it kind of consumed all of Wikipedia and just had an unfair advantage. Uh, so when AI was touted around that time as being able to read and digest all, what do we have, two million journal articles, peer-reviewed journal articles published every year? Yeah. But AI can read them all, right? And then they could apply, they allow doctors to apply the entire range of medical knowledge to treating any patient. That sounded great and it sounded credible after the, the, the Jeopardy thing, but it hasn't worked out that way. Oh, no, actually, now you got to the center of hype. Oh, which yeah. is Watson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you really hit it. Um, so in the book, I go through the, tr- the real um, problems with Watson being, you know, a big marketing effort and mm-hmm. not fulfilling its, its uh, claims. Mm-hmm. You know, someday they may well do that. They're very committed, but they haven't done anything that they've said. And, you know, there's an ad in the, in the book about the doctor that says, I read 5,000 articles and then I go see patients. Well, the problem we have today is uh, for uh, medical journal articles, the two million a year that mm-hmm. you, not, you mentioned, we don't have a way for uh, AI to it, – it, most of that is unstructured text. Yeah. There's no way for AI to, to ingest that and make sense of it, and it requires uh, human uh, input. So we're not there yet. We're going to get there in the next five years. Oh, we are. The unstructured medical text is now starting to really break, and so the tech titans are on it. Mm-hmm. But right now, we, there's no way you can read even just the abstracts of articles uh, with just AI. Yeah, yeah, it's not structured. We have a question from the audience that asks if you're concerned about bias in diagnostic tools from some of the skewed training data. For example, women are more likely to be misdiagnosed while having a heart attack than are men. Right, so this is something that keep in mind is that the, there isn't bias intrinsically in deep learning algorithms. It's the bias that we put in. As humans, we're the biased. Mm. We have 185 different types of bias. Uh, the algorithms have no bias. Mm-hmm. So that, that is a problem. As a cardiologist for decades, uh, we know that women uh, have different signs mm-hmm. and symptoms. And we have never really um, addressed this properly. And so an algorithm that puts in faulty data to suggest that they're all the same as far as symptoms is going to be um, uh, faulty. Yeah. So that's very representative of the problems we have with the bias of algorithms. They're not the algorithms. They're the inputs. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we had a speaker here uh, uh, last year, whom I believe you quoted in, in your book, who wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And Catherine O'Neill, yeah. Right, talked yeah. greatly about algorithms and how they we just often have biases built in there overall. Sure. Uh, one of the things I wanted to make sure we talked about was your chapter on deep diet. Right. That was excerpted in the New York Times earlier this month called The AI Diet. It was fascinating. And the big takeaway for me was uh, that we have to stop focusing on which foods are good or bad for people and focus more on which foods are right for an individual because nutrition is far more personal than I ever expected. So there's kind of no such thing as the right diet overall. It really depends on a person. And you actually went so far as to get your sort of own uh, uh, physiology uh, sequence to figure out what the right diet was for you. Tell us how you did that and what you learned. Well, the first point is something to underscore, that the idea that there's one diet that's magical for all people is uh, completely wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a reductionist, oversimplified, and it, it can't be the case. Now we have iced that, mm-hmm. and it's done through machine learning. Mm-hmm. And it took having all these layers of data including uh, a glucose sensor, everything a person would eat and drink, uh, their gut microbiome analyzed, uh, you know, medication, sleep, all these different layers of data to show that if you and I and everyone here ate the exact same amount of a food and the exact same time, that our glucoses would be all over the map. And that's been replicated by many groups. Mm -hmm. And now it's been extended to triglycerides, which is the main lipid substance in the blood. So mm. once we knew that, I, I said, I better find out. I'd like to know for me. So I did the experiment, two weeks glucose sensor, the pain in the neck of writing everything I ate down for, you know, in, you know typing into a smartphone for two weeks. And that was the subject of both the, the book chapter, Deep Diet, as well as that essay in the New York Times that you mentioned, Mark. So I learned that some of the foods that are my favorite are the ones that are the glucose spike uh, criminals for me. Mm-hmm. And so if I want to keep do, eating that stuff, then I'm not, it, that's not a good thing. Now, we don't know if getting rid of glucose spikes, which I can do now, I've checked on that. Do I need to do that? I don't know. <laughs> and am I going to miss all these foods I enjoy? <laughs> I don't know. But the point is that, not that. We're not ready for an individualized diet. We're going to get there in the next few years. Yeah. And uh, then the question is going to be, um, you know, can we use food as medicine Yeah, and, on an individualized basis? And that's pretty exciting. Well, the variation was amazing. I mean, you talked about a particular bacterium in your, in your bo- microbiome that's usually 1% or 2% for most people, and it was 27% or something I think, yeah, 90-some. Oh, for, for, yeah. right. Yeah. My proportion. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But yesterday we learned something even more. What's that? Uh, so that same group in Israel, yeah. which has led the charge on this at the Wiseman Institute, Aaron Siegel, mm-hmm. they published a paper which was, whoa. You know, so if you get your microbiome assessed today at these various companies, I don't recommend it, by the way. Uh, there's several of them, mm-hmm. you know, Ubiome and American Gut or I know all of them. They just said, what's that? American Gut, uh, that's good, yeah. Well, there's several of them. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> they, they, went, they go ahead and they tell you which bacteria and how much, like you said, what yeah. percent. But what they did in, in this paper that was just published in Nature, mm-hmm. they actually sequenced the bacteria. Mm-hmm. So it isn't just the bacteria, it's actually what are the variants, mm-hmm. the changes in letters in those bacteria that are really important. That's what's called metagenomics, yeah. which is much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's getting granular now. Yeah. And so that's actually the relationship is, is much bigger than just the bacteria itself, but the changes in those bacteria. Yeah, wow. Fascinating. Well, also, which foods were good and not good for you? I mean, your oh. diet, like cheesecake got an A and veggie burgers got a C. I know. For I, you. I was, and, you know, I, I know, I know uh, Dr. Triple has to fly back to San Diego tonight, but I had offered to take him out to dinner. He, he declined, but I was going to have to look for the best bratwurst restaurant in San Francisco because <laughs> bratwurst had an A-plus on his diet. That, that was scary. Yeah, who knew? That who was, knew? I, I think I consider bratwurst as lethal. Yeah. And it was A-plus. No, so. it's great for you. Please yeah, eat yeah. all the bratwurst you possibly can. Yeah, my goodness. We've got another audience question that says, as opposed to feeling threatened by AI, many physician offices, or physicians often feel superior to AI. And they might say, for example, I know the best cancer pathway for this patient better than an algorithm. So how are we going to convince specialists to adopt AI tools and trust the algorithms? Well, the, the difference is if you get a second or third opinion, mm-hmm. now you're getting thousands of opinions, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's fine to trust the doctor mm-hmm. and the one that thinks they know it all. 
But it's really nice if that's backed up by when you have massive data uh, Mm -hmm. put into the story. So that's the reinforcement that we don't have today. We we entrust an individual, and there are some wonderful, phenomenal doctors, but there are something that we tend to forget. Is half of doctors are below average. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> By definition. And we hope that the uh, algorithms are the best of, right, overall, based yeah. on, on the deep data overall. Uh, here's a question. How do you, uh, in your work, bridge the communications gap between your, your technical and your medical coworkers? We're going to see more and more of that with AI and healthcare. This is really important. Yeah. You want to have the computer scientists, data scientists working a lot with doctors. And, mm-hmm. you know, I tell a story in there about um, the startup here in San Francisco, AliveCore, mm-hmm. in the region, and how this little uh, team of a few data scientists basically beat Apple to the punch by a year. And I don't know how many of you have an Apple Watch that has a, a heart rhythm detection, mm-hmm. which is the first FDA-approved uh, consumer deep learning algorithm. Mm-hmm. At any rate, the, this little startup beat them. But they did it by Mayo Clinic doctors with data scientists working together. And what's really fascinating about the story is that the, the cardiologists at Mayo Clinic, they thought that to be able to diagnose potassium, through your watch without any blood, the mm-hmm. potassium level, that you had to focus on this portion of the cardiogram. Mm-hmm. And so they gave that information and some limited restricted cardiograms, of millions of cardiograms, to the data scientists. Mm-hmm. And it was a complete uh, blotto, you know, yeah. didn't work. Yeah. So the data scientists would just give us the whole, all the cardiograms and give, don't restrict them, just give us everything. And then they cracked the case. So the point is working together with the biases that each of these disciplines have mm-hmm. is turns out that's just an example, but there's so many in the book about that. And, and that's essential. And we tend to work in silos. We just can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do at Scripps about that? Well, we actually, in our uh, Scripps research uh, Institute, we have uh, data scientists, artificial intelligence uh, gurus and uh, physicians uh, all working together. We have a, a really remarkable <laughs> transdisciplinary team. Mm-hmm. And, when I recently did the – I was commissioned by the U.K. to work on the NHS uh, planning in the next 20 years. We, by the way, they're way ahead of us mm-hmm. in planning. Oh, yeah. We actually had that same type of multidisciplinary. That is the best. Mm-hmm. I mean you, you don't want to try to define the unmet needs by engineers and computer scientists. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you don't want the doctors uh, <laughs> you know, creating the algorithm. Yeah, so yeah, you, really, you really need them working together. Great, great. We've been talking a lot about healthcare, pro- providing healthcare in the healthcare delivery side, but another place the AI s- supposedly has some promise is in drug discovery, so inventing new drugs. What's the, what's the reality and the, the future there? Well, there's a lot of action. It's a crowded area of some 25 or more companies that are in the so-called AI drug discovery space, um, and there's a chapter about that in the book. Uh, we haven't seen that. Um, click yet. I mean, just today there was another big acquisition by Bristol Myers of a AI drug discovery company. So you're going to see a lot of it, but the they're all new. They're all in recent years. It's going to take a little while to see. But the point being is, there's an algorithm in every aspect of the drug discovery uh, chain, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, simulating if the drug is going to work without having to go preclinical animal models, mm-hmm. to dosing, to be able to predict. Uh, to mining the entire world's knowledge. I mean, there's so many things that we can do to speed the process. And as everyone knows, drug discovery is so many failures, which hopefully we can reduce, and it takes so long, and it's so expensive. So there's a lot of promise, but we don't know yet if it's really going to work. Yeah, yeah, and I guess linked to linked to the drug discovery when you have the drugs, figuring out where they work. And I don't want to beat up on Watson again, but certainly one of the examples you mentioned in, our, in the book that's really astonishing was with the leading cancer center, MD Anderson, mm. tried using Watson uh, and the supercomputer to improve diagnosis. And they, I think they were trying to both take a look at all the, not only the clinical literature, but they looked at patient charts as well and tried to put it all together. And uh, the medical center ultimately canceled the project after spending $62 million, which is a lot of money. They've got a lot of smart people at MD Anderson. They still wasted that money. So what really went wrong there? And 
mm. is that is this an issue about is this a harbinger of bad things for the future of AI or was it just one one a one off an expensive one off mistake? Whoa, it's a it's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. Um, the analysis uh, of that, uh, you know, there's been quite a bit written on it, uh, was that they tried to deal with electronic health records, which have the same problem of unstructured text. Mm-hmm. So that was a big miss. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the promises that IBM made to MD Anderson uh, were obviously overreaching. Mm-hmm. And so they the expenditures were uh, ridiculous. The whole thing had to be um, uh, canceled. Um, and I think it was a big lesson both to the one of our leading cancer centers in this country as well as to uh, IBM Watson. Uh, they are still involved with many different cancer centers around not only this country and the world, mm-hmm. but they got to deliver, and they haven't proven it yet. Mm-hmm. So we're awaiting. And one of the things I make a big deal about in the book is about peer-reviewed publications. Mm-hmm. There's very there's like a limited there's number. The evidence and, and the only one that's come out from IBM is – from uh, UNC, and it's really marginal. It's basically saying that they could find more patients that would fit into clinical trials than the cancer doctors at that center. Mm-hmm. That's not exactly IBM Watson uh, doing magic. So we we're, we await to see. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised with the resources that are being put into that. It'll eventually do something useful, but it hasn't really hit yet. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Uh, we've got an audience question here about uh, the fact that since AI is usually funded through venture capitals and other proprietary sources and often secret, um, big medicine breakthroughs are often funded through open source uh, ways, uh, government, transparent, and so forth. Um, are you worried about the potential for bias and what happens with AI? I'm worried about everything. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> let, let me just make one thing clear. Uh-huh. My, that isn't my principal worry. Mm-hmm. The biggest worry I have is this remarkable, unprecedented increase in productivity, efficiency, workflow, is going to be used by administrators mm-hmm. to make things even worse than it is today. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the natural default mode. And if we don't all stand up for the patient-doctor relationship, whether it's the medical community, the public, that's my biggest worry. Now, am I worried about other things like that? Sure. <laughs> but like privacy, security, worsening inequities, bias, black box algorithms, jobs. I can give you a long list of things I'm worried about. <laughs> I got more. There's a yeah. whole chapter on deep liabilities. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not the biggest worry. But let me just say the AI field is somewhat distinctive from other areas of science. Mm-hmm. It's been the most open of all. Mm-hmm. Now, the exception to that are the companies, like you say, startups, largely, that are going to get FDA approval. Most of them have been for radiology algorithms uh, and some other ones. Uh, they, are, they have these proprietary algorithms they don't want to share, mm-hmm. and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so outside of that, most, what you'll see is most of the companies uh, have made a lot of their stuff open source. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that a lot with Google and Microsoft, um, and uh, to a lesser extent, Amazon and Apple. But there's pressure to mm-hmm. do that, to, to make it open source. So we'll see. But uh, some of the early signs are, are, are relatively promising. Uh, the, more is a concern of these startups that are very worried about their IP mm-hmm. uh, protection. And this is a little bit related, but it's, it's more inherent to, to AI itself and, and deep learning, as I understand it. And with deep learning, you may give the the, the computer some original initial rules or algorithms, but it will interact with a database, a large data set, and it will learn and learn and learn and learn and come up with its own new improved algorithm. And we don't always know exactly what the alg- algorithm is. Right. So then the computer will say, okay, I think the patient has this diagnosis or should do this, right? Um, and we don't really know why. Should we be concerned about that? Yeah, so uh, yes and no. (laughs) Let me just also make something uh, really abundantly clear is that we can train a machine to do things, see things that humans will never be able to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me give a quick few examples. If I show a picture of a retina to the leading international retina experts of the world, 
and I say, is this a retina picture from a male or a female? Mm -hmm. The answer for them, the chance of getting it right is Mm -hmm. (laughs) 50-50. An algorithm can do that over 97% accuracy. Wow. But we don't know how. Yeah, we don't know how. Uh, Another example is machine vision for polyps. Many of you have had a colonoscopy. Not a fun procedure. It's even less fun if the doctor misses the small polyps and that are just as precancerous or potentially indicating cancer than the large polyps. So a lot of them are missed, but machine vision, they don't miss. Mm -hmm. It's actually you can be trained. And that potassium on the watch, we would never be able to look at a cardiogram and say the potassium level is 5.7 milliequivalents per liter. But So these are examples of that you can see. Now, do we have any real idea how they work? No. Mm -hmm. Now, the real question to you is, and I, I asked this, I interviewed and spent a lot of time with some of the leading AI scientists. Mm-hmm. One of them is Pedro Domingos, who wrote a, a wonderful book called The Master Algorithm. He's up in uh, University of Washington. I said, well, Pedro, if you didn't understand the black box, unexplainable algorithm, and it was for your care, would you, would you want to use it? He said, absolutely. I'd rather have that than the doctor. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's a little extreme. Um, <laughs> But the point here is that if we all had this algorithm that was validated, mm-hmm. randomized studies, uh, you know, all the replicated, everything you'd want, mm-hmm. but we didn't, it wasn't explainable, mm-hmm. would, you, would you trust it? And no one knows the real answer here. Uh, but the one good thing that's happening, yeah. Mark, is that now we're using AI again to be the deconstructing force mm-hmm. to then start to go through and understand what are the features. The examples I've given, it hasn't been cracked yet, but some others have. So in the future, uh, explainability in AI, particularly for medicine, is going to be an, uh, an important objective, but we're not there yet. Yeah. And yeah. it's a tough one. Do you, do you let it be used yeah. even, even though you've shown its work? Now, the other thing is we hold AI accountable more than humans mm-hmm. because a lot of things we do in medicine, we don't know why they work, no, no. how it works, but we still use it every yeah. day. Yeah. We, we prescribe medicines. We don't know how it works. We, we use anesthetics. We have no clue how they work, mm-hmm. but we use them. So why don't we uh, take on the black box of medicine today, too? Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. But it's clear that AI is good at deep learning, but that's different from deep teaching, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Interesting. Exactly. I've got a question here about AI in medicine and its impact on uh, medical school curriculum. You know, it's interesting that uh, the Zetima Project, we've got a number of, of, of graduate student fellows, and one of them, current fellow, is a uh, medical student at Brown who's taking a year off to get a master's in public health at Harvard, focused entirely on AI because he feels that he's not getting that in the medical school curriculum, perhaps not surprisingly. Not at all but, surprising. But if we're, going to be doing, if we're going to be using AI more and more in medicine, do you think that will change medical school curriculum anytime soon? Well, it should. Mm-hmm. But the, the last part of your question, anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is medical schools, there's 140-odd in this country. Mm-hmm. And to change the curriculum, it is just like you know, changing the direction of a battleship. Yeah. Takes a long time. It's just ridiculous. And having started a medical school, uh, you, you know, starting from scratch, you have a better shot. But frankly, it, it's really challenging. Uh, it has to go through all these layers and approvals and whatnot. So uh, it should be part of every curriculum. Every medical student today should be well-versed in all aspects of AI. Uh, but it isn't on any curriculum as far as I know at this point. Yeah, not in any serious way. Of course, it depends how much there is to teach right now that they can actually use. and. Well, it's also important that doctors, you know, as we talked about, collaborate yeah. and, and f- feel facile. Um, I, I mean, I know that this, this is going to be a, a critical aspect of the future of medicine, and you have to know the, the caveats, the limitations, the nuances. They're really going to be critical to taking care of patients. You know, algorithms are not going to be on, working on their own. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm going to try to uh, combine a couple, a couple of questions here, really about how hospitals and other providers can um, – adopt and integrate AI solutions today, and particularly how to choose between vendors that have similar AI-powered diagnoses for the same condition overall. I don't know how, how, how realistic a question this is for today, how much choice they have right now, but shortly they will, and how should they decide among those vendors? Well, uh, you know, I think there, the, from the medical community, it's really, you know, what's been published, mm-hmm. how strong are the data, and then... You don't ever want to accept 
what it's been published on because it could be a unique venue mm-hmm. or a unique cohort of patients. It has to be proven in your uh, environment. Mm-hmm. And so we've already seen where there's a great algorithm. It's got you know accuracy at the 99% level, but then it doesn't work somewhere else mm-hmm. because the patients are different there. Yeah. And so that's one of the really important things is everything has to be under continuous surveillance even mm-hmm. after implementation. So just because you picked a particular vendor – of AI and it, uh, the data were published and they were really strong. Uh, I wouldn't just take that as a final word. Mm-hmm. And at this point, as you point out, there's really not much publication, published data to rely on anyway. It's right. pretty slim. The one that particularly worrisome is that the FDA doesn't require publications. Right. So the data are all secret in the in the bowels of the FDA, and then they're selling the stuff. And I really have a problem with that mm-hmm. because I wouldn't want to use vendors where the only data is unobtainable yeah. before you're making decisions about treating patients. Yeah. And I want to demand to see that data or I'm not going to use that company. Yeah. And the data are typically generated by the company itself. So. Yeah. But, I mean, so they're yeah. getting smarter about doing independent research. Mm-hmm. But if it's independent and you can't see it, what good is it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Another question from the audience. What do you think about the potential promise of health technology companies to empower consumers with a better understanding of their health through direct-to-consumer testing in genetics and other similar fields? Mm-hmm. You know okay. Well, we <laughs> talked about the diet, which isn't ready. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the potassium on the watch, which is going to come out in the weeks ahead, and that's going to be great for people with kidney disease because then they – they are at risk for having high potassium, and this will be a way for them to keep track of that. These are consumer-oriented. The, the heart rhythm is already out there, although I'm worried about that because even though it works well, mm-hmm. it's being used in the wrong people who are at such low risk. They're getting all kinds of false alarms, and mm-hmm. they're getting all sorts of unnecessary workups. And this is, I think, uh, unhelpful for Apple to just widely um, uh, put it out there rather than to say if you're not such and such type of person don't don't turn this thing on you yeah, know? yeah or don't even market it as they have yeah <laughs> but that's apple anyway um so uh there's going to be a lot more as far as direct to consumer genomics um a lot how many of you have had 23 and me here yeah quite a few this is 23 and me country i know yeah so. yeah um there's some 30 million people in the u.s have had either that or ancestry and then a small number of proportion have had some of the smaller companies. I actually think consumer genomics can be a good force, but it's at mix with so much uh, malarkey. Yeah. And that's a real problem. And the average consumer doesn't know high quality. And even the, some of the better companies within their offerings have junk, you know, unproven junk science. Mm-hmm. So. We, we're at a loss here, and it's given the field a bad name in some respects, at least as far as I'm concerned. So I'm awaiting for kind of a, a, a real cleanup of this area. Um, but one thing you should know about, we put out uh, an app called MyGeneRank. Mm-hmm. And if you want to know your risk for heart disease, it's a collection of hundreds of variants of your genome, common variants. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's free. It's out of uh, scripts. And basically, you can take your 23andMe data, which are good data. It's just how you use that data. But you can put it in the app. And while we're talking, you can get your heart score between 0 to 100. And if you're at high risk, as I learned I was, and I wouldn't have guessed from my family history or other factors, you will benefit from a statin. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're at low risk and you're deciding whether or not to take a statin because they're kind of in the water supply, yeah. uh, you will benefit from not taking a statin. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that's useful. We'll see a lot more of that, these polygenic risk scores for things like uh, type 2 diabetes, breast cancer, prostate cancer, atrial fibrillation, and many other common conditions. Okay. That's where I think consumer genomics is really going to uh, take off. Great. And next three years? Uh, well, starting now, yeah, but yeah. in the next year, 2019 and 20, uh, 23andMe just put out their diabetes polygenic risk score. You're going to see them all out there um, 
you know, we, we're trying to make it free, yeah. uh, but others are trying to make, make uh, revenue from them. But I actually think um, the data are sound. They're based on millions of people. And you're going to get used to that term, PRS, polygenic risk score. And women are not going to have to go for mammography every year or two who have no risk of breast cancer. And men don't have to get their PSAs and all these other things done. And, you know, we're, it's going to have a big impact of this kind of part of the deep phenotyping yeah. where it's going to help individualize medicine. So this is a place where deep medicine really will have an impact in the near future. I think so. In so. fact, uh, you know, I think it's already having impact uh, in certain uh, conditions, and it's just going to get better over time as long as it's actionable. To just have the risk and not being able to do anything about it, that's not like Alzheimer's. Yeah. That's not of any value. But if there's a known uh, intervention, then I think it really makes a difference. Uh, personal interest of mine is, is End of Life Care. I run the End of Life series here at the Commonwealth Club and, and, and co-founded a company that was a telephone counseling service for patients at End of Life. And one of the things we tried to do was to predict when people would die, when ill people would die because they'd benefit from the service more if they were uh, getting closer to death. Um, and we had a whole bunch of experts working on that and did a moderately good job of predicting that. But my understanding from your book is we've gotten much better at that, at predicting when patients are likely to die, ill patients are likely to die. You actually had a very poignant story in there about your father-in-law that might be worth sharing here. Yeah, well, that was an example that we're not good at predicting. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and I actually come out a little more on that side. Yeah. We're really good for classifying and for uh, identifying. We're not so good yet for prediction, uh, particularly for you know, life or death. Mm -hmm. And so the story that you're, Mark's alluding to is my father-in-law, who I kind of adopted as my father because my father died young, um, he basically uh, was on death's door the uh, the team at the hospital said we should just make him a do not resuscitate. Mm -hmm. And then they arranged for him to come to our home to die. And uh, the night before he was to come home to our, I mean, to our house, uh, my wife and daughter spent a lot of time with him. And uh, in the following morning, um, as we were, as the, they were taking him on the stretcher to move him home, mm -hmm. um, he uh, completely came to. Mm-hmm. Um, out of the coma that they said he would never wake up from. Mm -hmm. uh, any every algorithm uh, is got uh, it's basically based on large numbers of people, and then we're trying to individualize, mm -hmm. and it would be totally wrong if you looked at an algorithm for him. Yeah. He was he was it was over. Yeah, he was dead. Yeah, um, but it's wrong. And so the point being is. That story, uh, when it happened, reinforced to me how poor we are today. And it's not really proven that we can change that. Um, that you may be able to say everyone's going to die. So you'll be perfectly right about that. Mm -hmm. That's easy. But when? Yeah. That's the tricky part. Yeah. And we're not so good at that. And that example is pretty vivid. But um, I think that uh, palliative care wants to know that. Uh, obviously, it helps to make planning mm -hmm. and for both families and patients, but it's tricky um, because there's so many human matters of context that we don't really understand. You know, things like uh, the love and the relationship and the, the home and the environment and behavioral things. There's so many layers that you can't, they're unstructured. Yeah. And, you know, algorithms are things that can be digitized. Yeah. And human stuff isn't all digitizable. Yeah. Yeah. There's some interesting research showing that, for instance, uh, observant Jews tend to die uh, when they're older, often immediately after holiday, Jewish mm -hmm. holidays. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously people are hanging on for seeing the family or something. Sure. Oh, and the same thing with weddings and yeah, yeah. major life events. People will get through it. They somehow, they, they, they cope and fight to get to that milestone. Yeah. 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 Got a different kind of a question for you here. Uh, this says, you have an incredible Twitter following. I think it's in the six figures. And even... Uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey follows you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so I the was question is, by that. Yeah. <laughs> do you write your own tweets? And what impact has social media had for you? Well, I want to make clear every single tweet I've written comes from me. I don't believe in ghost tweeting. <laughs> I abhor ghost anything. So you're, you're the real Eric. Uh, that's me. Every <laughs> single tweet. <laughs> and it shows you how crazy I am because yeah. I had like almost 19,000 tweets. But that's over a decade almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so it isn't like I do that all in the last few months or weeks. Um, I'm really into Twitter. And when Jack Dorsey and the three other guys that were drunk one night in a bar near here yeah. invented Twitter, yeah. 
uh, if you read the book Hacking uh, Twitter, I guess it was called, something like that, um, they had no idea they would come up with this incredible science platform, Mm -hmm. in my view. Yeah. And I've told Jack that. Yeah. But the point being is that I love it because I share what I read and I I read a lot and I learn every day through Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a fantastic way to exchange ideas and information and uh, I'll keep uh, going at it. It's it's something that I, I really enjoy. How many of you are active on Twitter here? Mm-hmm. About half or so? Interesting. I encourage you all to, even if you don't want to tweet, there's a lot of good stuff there. And it's um, my best source of information every every day. Mm-hmm. There's a huge amount. Yeah. I mean, there's some nasty people on Twitter, no question. <laughs> and I just mute them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, otherwise, it's just f- phenomenal. A question. This is a little bit of a broader question, but that's okay. You can handle it. Um, the data show pretty clearly that that the majority of someone's health is is not affected by the medical system, right? It's it's external sorts of things. It's public health. It's it's lifestyle and behavior, and it's conditions. It's social determinants and so forth. So here's a kind of a social question: that as a society, are we wasting precious res- precious resources investing in high tech, individualized medicine, AI, instead of investing in some of the things? completely outside of healthcare, much lower tech that might have a bigger impact on health. Well, we do have a great example of that uh, with smoking. Mm-hmm. As we reduce smoking, it's the only you know big, big impact we've seen for, uh, promoting health mm-hmm. in the population and in the, in the, on the world. But on the other hand, um, changing people's behavior mm-hmm. and improving lifestyle is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, whether you use nudges or whether you use, you know, feedback of your polygenic risk score or whatever, it's really hard to change a person's lifestyle and their behavior. So what we're looking for are things that are infallible, that don't require active uh, uh, conscious uh, effort, because mm-hmm. most people don't want to put that in. Um, they aren't going to be law- endurable, enduring, durable discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to do that, we, we treat all people the same now, mm-hmm. largely, and that's what's wrong and that's, what's wasteful. Mm-hmm. I mean, why do we send every woman to have a mammogram when only 12% of women will ever have breast cancer? Mm-hmm. Why do we put everyone er, through colonoscopies and through prostates? And I mean, you name it, we treat everybody the same. We can mm-hmm. do better than that. We can save billions of dollars a year for each of these diagnoses if we just were smart about the data. So that's where we're headed. That's a different way than to try to change behavior, which mm-hmm. is a tough nut to crack. Yeah, it's a lot of the deep phenotyping. And interestingly, you know, the, on the smoking side, that's one of the only places that the U.S. has done so well, right, that we have decreased our smoking rates more than most other countries. On the other hand, we our obesity problem is much worse than many countries. Right. And obesity, you know, uh, in the weeks ahead, there'll be an obesity risk score that comes out. Mm-hmm. question is, so then what? Yeah. Are we yeah. going to, are the people, when you know a baby is going to have a high propensity for obesity, are you going to change, change the way you, the baby grows up? And yeah. There's some tough things here, but these are pieces of knowledge that are new. And they just bring up whole new uh, concepts that we haven't confronted before. Well, the, the behavior change example in your book I found most interesting was when you talked about what a, a health coach of the future might look like. Yeah. Well, by AI. Talk I'm so glad that. you brought that up because that really is the, the, the strategy ultimate here where you have this avatar that you've picked, and some of them now are amazing mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, you're looking at them, they sense you're tired or you're, you're happy or whatever, they talk to you. And this avatar, when I give lots of examples mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, just what it would be like, is now uh, has all your data, all your data, mm-hmm. every level, and is continuously updating your data, including the corpus of the medical literature, and including, you know, millions of other people with that are, are digital twins mm-hmm. and all the rest of the people. And it's now giving you guidance. It's coaching you. Mm-hmm. And it's saying, you know, Mark, you haven't had a good night's sleep in a week. Mm-hmm. And your gut microbiome is changing and all this other stuff. And, uh, or, you know, your asthma. It's yeah. basically using to prevent conditions. Yeah. Or it, be, completely or to better manage ones that you have. Yeah. We're going to get there. Yeah. We're starting to see it now for certain conditions. Eventually, it'll be a general coach. And that, to me, for the people who are willing to use it, mm-hmm. and you know what's going to happen. 
is you're going to have employers that say, if you're not using the general medical coach, we're not going to give you your whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, it's going to head there eventually. And by the way, I think you know 70% of people in this country, uh, their health care is through their employer. Mm-hmm. So if their employers get into the virtual medical coaching instead mm-hmm. of this stupid thing about steps, mm-hmm. which has no science at all, <laughs> um, where they, they grab that and it got marketed to the <laughs> hilt. But if they get into the virtual medical coach over the next five years, that's going to be a really big thing. And it's going to help condition chronic, many chronic medical conditions for their management, like blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, and so many others. Yeah. You had some great Heart little uh, examples there. You know, I know that uh, my son showed me that you can put a, a, geo, uh, a geo marker on your phone so that when you walk in the door of your house, you can get a reminder. You can do that today. A reminder that actually can be location-specific. So... You could combine this with someone who's got asthma, and they're going into a, an area that's uh, bad for their breathing, and they can say, hey, watch out. <laughs> yeah, well, inhaler. that's one of the best yeah. examples of digital medicine to date in Louisville. Yeah. They gave every asthmatic, if they wanted it, a connected inhaler mm-hmm. to know where there were air quality hotspots. Mm-hmm. And that, over the course of a year, it reduced asthma attacks by 50%. Wow. In the city of Louisville. Wow. And it reduced uh, use of inhalers by 70%. So just by having data from other people, look at the impact for a common condition, which can, if severe, be life-threatening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrific. So there's some real opportunities to improve some things. You know, when you talk about shallow medicine, one of the examples you gave was that up to a third of medical operations and between 30 and 50 percent of CT scans seem to be unnecessary. And in fact, the U.S. is rated as leading the world in unnecessary medical procedures. I'm not by sure far. We're proud of by that. By far, yeah. So can AI... Is that an AI solvable problem? Yes. It is. How? Well, I mean, oh. let me just start off with the, <laughs> the sobering data oh. that in this country, we spend $11,000 per person, more than 11000 Yeah. okay? And we have the worst outcomes mm-hmm. of all countries, of deve- deve- 37 yeah. of the richest countries. Yeah. We are the worst, number yeah. 37. Yeah. That's for life expectancy. We're the only one in history that has gone down in life expectancy over the past three years. Yeah. Never been done yeah. in the history of known data yeah. collection. Uh, infant mortality, childhood mortality, maternal mortality. We yeah. are the worst. Terrible. Yeah. So take that. And now in the UK, which I know well, having been involved with the NHS review, they spend $4,000 instead of 11000 Yeah. almost a third. And they have better, far better outcomes for everything. Mm-hmm. They do a fraction of the scans mm-hmm. and the tests and the overcooking of everything that we do here. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. So what, what can AI do to fix this? Well, if you are a patient and you're being told you should have this scan or your, this test, your coach mm-hmm. will tell you no. Mm-hmm. The data does not support it. And beyond that, the doctor should get in their AI notification, don't order this test Mm -hmm. because the data doesn't support it. But right now, we just are overcooking. Every patient almost is getting too many tests, too many medications. I spend my clinic every week (laughs) de-prescribing all the medicines that these other doctors have put them on, these poor patients, and then telling them that they don't need that scan and they don't need this implant. It's just incredible. Mm -hmm. This is American medicine. Yeah. So there's two issues. One is inequities where people who are not getting access and lower socioeconomic class that have poor outcomes, but the other are all the complications and the incidental omens mm-hmm. that are being engendered by overcooking in medicine, which is Americans lead that. Yeah, yeah. Incidental omens was a, yeah. a term mm. coined really for us. For it's it's U.S. healthcare. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I do, by the way, I do want to thank the audience for all these great questions. I'm are sorry great. I have not been able to get to all of them because we <laughs> unfortunately have reached the time in the program where we have time for just one last question. And I'm going to ask my question. Okay. <laughs> Those are <laughs> all prerogative. your questions. <laughs> oh, no, I got more. <laughs> so you believe uh, that in sense paradoxically that greater use of computers and AI will increase humanism in medicine. And I understand that that's because you think will free up time and attention that doctors can then use to interact with patients better. Um, it's just not obvious that doctors will use any time freed up to, to, to spend more time per patient rather than just seeing more patients, whether they want to make more money or the administrators tell them they have to, or maybe just going home earlier. You know? 
Uh, you also point out that many doctors lack empathy or lack listening skills that aren't really trained in medical school. So even if doctors did spend more time, would they be any more effective? So the real question is, do you think, why do you think that AI can really help restore this connection between doctors and patients? Well, I think it's very clear that the reason why people go into medicine, doctors, nurses, and all the other healthcare professionals is they really want to help patients. They just have been blocked. And that's what's so sad here. And that's why you have the peak burnout and depression and suicide in the history of the medical profession. And if anybody knows a better way to turn this around, please let me know, because mm-hmm. I've thought a lot about this. Mm-hmm. And so what you have here is an unacceptable situation, which is getting worse. And we need to restore the mission of healthcare, bring the care back in that term healthcare, where the latter syllable is meaningless today. So we have a way forward, but it's only going to happen with remarkable activism. If we don't have the activism of the medical community standing up for patients, then, it, then we will not see this uh, uh, opportunity, which I think is once in a lifetime, maybe generations even, we might not see a technological solution ever again mm-hmm. like this one. But it's going to take a lot of work, and it's not going to happen by accident. Because we've already seen what happens when you have administrators ruling the roost. And that's to make more money. And that's to erode the care. So we have to turn this back. Now, for years, doctors in the medical community have not been activists. They said, we're too busy. We don't we want to just involve with patients. You know, we, 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 we can't do it. But, you know, recently we've seen that change. Mm-hmm. When the NRA said to doctors, stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. They came out big time. <laughs> yeah. And that activism is what we need for this. Mm-hmm. And I now with social media and lots of young doctors, especially women doctors who are leading activists, mm-hmm. we have a chance to see this uh, be actualized. So I'm excited about it. So technology enables... But uh, we have to have the leadership to make it happen. Yes, many absolutely. Ways. That's great. Absolutely. Well, our thanks to Dr. Eric Topol, the director and founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute and an official rock star of science. <laughs> and I want to also thank our audiences here in San Francisco, as well as those on radio, television, and the Internet. I'm Mark Zitter. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know, is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> so.